0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the OSINT Bunkers News Snapshots, uh, our once a fortnight uh, short news podcast, bringing you the latest from around the world. I'm joined this evening by uh, George Allison and obviously OSINT Technical, uh, two of my co-hosts here on the podcast. Um, Technical, now that I've interrupted you, would you like to uh, take over?
1: (laughs) Now I can lead it um we wanted to touch on a few things this week um i, I know for, both george and john have individual stuff they they want to touch on um but the, the main three topics are are obviously going to be sort of a carryover actually from uh, last week so um of course entire middle east situation um ranging from yemen to israel to gaza to um syria and iraq um and then we have ukraine of course um and then a brief touch on some new US, U.K. carrier deployments. Um, it's been a while since we've seen one, and all we right may see another in the near future. <laughs> um, but just leading off Red Sea, obviously, I, I think you know, looking at um, the U.K.'s Maritime Trade Office, um, which is sort of responsible for for officially broadcasting warnings and and news of of various Houthi attacks. Um, on ships in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, um, we haven't seen many actually over this past week. Um, the the frequency of attacks has dropped. Hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, we've seen an increase in U.S. U.K. Um, proactive self-defense strikes, um, hitting Houthi uh, U.S.V.s, hitting Houthi. Um, uh, anti-ship ballistic missile uh, tells and launch locations um is this a sign that operation prosperity guardian is working and and is it actually um sort of forming results for for shipping in the region
0: i think the americans and the british will certainly be hoping that that is what it shows i think to a certain extent it's probably too early to say at the end of the day, we, we have seen a significant amount of shipping has diverted um, over the last month, of course, and so there is that element where perhaps the Houthis aren't being as successful because there's not quite as many targets as perhaps there was when they started all of this some time ago now. But it's also worth noticing that the Iranian um, intelligence gathering ship that has been widely uh, speculated to be gathering the information for the Houthis and providing them with the targeting data, has been hiding in a Chinese-owned port um, in Africa for most of the last week. And as a result, it's entirely likely that the Houthis now, due to the strikes on their radar installations and um, some of their other assets, perhaps don't have as much information as they would like in order to be able to launch such attacks.
1: And that is interesting because attacks did shift um, from more the, the Strait of Hormuz and the Red Sea into the Gulf of Aden after the Iranian spy ship, which is the the Bishad, um, and I believe it has a a, a corvette escorting it at the moment. Um, but but both of those went through the Strait of Hormuz uh, from the Red Sea into the Gulf of Aden, um, and and attacks appeared to sort of shift in line with that. Um, uh, especially the attack on um, uh, the, uh, the, the the Marlin Luanda, um, which was hit hit by a, a Houthi anti-ship ballistic missile, suffered um, some fairly severe damage, but was fortunately aided by uh, um, Indian, French, and uh, U.S. Uh, ships, and we talked about this two weeks ago. But it, it, it definitely does seem like potentially the Houthis are getting some very direct targeting information from the Iranians and from that Iranian ship operating in the area.
0: And as I say, at some point I would imagine that vessel will come back out of port and maybe we'll see an uptick in the attacks on commercial shipping again. Um, But as I say, for for the moment I think it's probably too early really to say, although certainly it looks like a positive uh, result at the moment for the US and and British strikes.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a long-term question right now of when shipping companies will be comfortable moving back into the Bab el-Mandeb and, and, mo- and actually putting shipping traffic back in the area. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to be.
2: Hmm. Well, right now, I mean, transit through the Bab el-Mandeb, I think it was before the attacks was about 500 per week, Never now down to oh, 300, and, and that's after the Naval Protection operation started, and that's after the US-UK attack on the Yemen mainland, were so, in. Whether or not confidence is restored, it seems like that's a long way off.
1: I mean, it, it shipping companies will obviously have their own concerns. Yeah. Um, and, and insurance companies as well, because they're they're the ones that make the real decisions on these issues. And I think at this point we should probably move and touch on Ukraine, um, which has seen some uh, interesting shakeups over the past uh, 30 or... 48, 72 hours, um, in regards to, um, the military command structure, uh, with, with the firing of the Ukrainian, uh, commander in chief, uh, or of the commander in chief of the armed forces, um, who was, uh, sort of not unceremoniously let go, but after weeks of, um, of postulation and, and weeks of rumors and weeks of reports was finally announced to be departing his post by Zelensky. Um, and, and there were several other uh, senior membership or, or senior positions um, that were also vacated um, and replaced within the Ukrainian uh, Armed Forces defense staff. And I, I think that that raises kind of an interesting question of what is Zelensky doing? Uh, what is this shift doing to the Ukrainian armed forces? What What is the end result of this going to be? Um, sort of what directions do we go in here?
2: Yeah, and
0: it's it's fair to say that the, the chap who's been um, dismissed, um, I, I can't pronounce his name for the life of me, so I'm not going to try it, but he was generally very well regarded, it seems, among... Sort of his, his junior ranks and 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 among the rest of the defense staff, um, the chap that Zelensky is obviously selected to replace him, seemingly not so much. Um, I've I've heard a a great many people saying that he's uh, not very well respected by uh, the junior ranks and and a lot of people have been suggesting that Zelensky's move here is is largely political, um, that. This general was perhaps providing a little bit too much of a uh, sort of celebrity figure within the government, and perhaps Zelensky felt threatened politically as a result of that. Um, obviously, it, you know, in times of war, it, it's hard to say how much of it is political sort of manoeuvrings and how much of it is Zelensky's genuine belief that it was time for someone else to lead the army. Um, obviously, the Ukrainian military has for the most part been in somewhat of a stalemate uh, with the Russian military now for some some months. Um, and obviously that, that, that is partly down to weather conditions over the winter and, and also due to just the, the state of the conflict at this stage. Um, but I, th- I think it's hard to say at the minute whether there is sort of a long-term plan for Zelensky behind this manoeuvre or how much of it is just... As, as people have been saying, this feeling of a political threat to his leadership.
1: I mean, obviously, the former commander-in-chief of Ukrainian Armed Forces, Elzani, um, and and the, the new one, Sirsky, um, certainly have what is perceived as different command styles. Now, obviously, we don't know the inner machinations of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Um, especially Ukrainian armed force leadership. But the one thing that we do know is their outward perception. And at the end of the day, among the Ukrainian armed forces, the rank and file, you know, lower level officers, um, there is a perception uh, uh, that Searsky is a bit more willing um, to directly obey orders from, without sort of, you know, comment and, and without feedback, um, directly obey orders from political leadership um he is perceived as holding bakhmut too long um and and causing sort of undue ukrainian casualties as uh, the the sort of supply lines collapsed um he's he's viewed as pushing forward um the the counteroffensive around bakhmut over the summer um that just didn't really achieve that much um and and was you know fairly casualty heavy for what it was um I think that that perception alone is probably causing a bit of harm um to the Ukrainian armed forces right now, especially as they come into a similar situation in Evdivka. Um, you know, you're you're seeing um right now what is very much a, a stressed main supply route and, and a potential for, you know, forces to become encircled and and sort of brutal street fighting in the city. Um And I I think that there will continue to be that perception, whether or not he'll directly be um, responsible for it, of sort of pushing forward um, heavier casualties or or pushing forward um, more politically expedient ideas um, without sort of under, or not necessarily, he definitely understands. I mean, he's a good general. He's, he's, he's been a commander for a while and is generally known to be fairly respected uh, among sort of that group of generals. But it'll be sort of pushing a more politically expedient uh, method of, of prosecuting war. And I, I think that may continue to provide pressure among the rank and file.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I'm sure that the, uh, the general that's been dismissed is probably grateful that he's on the Ukrainian side rather than, uh, say, on the Russian side. Um, given what Putin's been doing with uh, the vast majority of his generals in the last uh, six months well the
1: Ukrainians are getting far more of them than the Russians are getting rid of them so if it's, if it's a bad general or, or a bad commander they're, they're much more likely to uh, to die in a high Mars or a storm shadow strike than actually get fired so uh, that, is, that is the one upside for the Russians if, if you can call that the upside to that situation
0: and of course speaking about the russians i think it's probably worth just briefly mentioning the um interview uh if if you could call it that um that a certain us uh member of the press had with vladimir putin this week
1: oh lord um so i watched most of it it was it was a slog i'm going to be honest with everyone it was it was a bit of a rambling history lesson or or not necessarily a history lesson, but a lesson on how Putin views history. Um, it, it was definitely very pedantic. I saw a few people comment in um, uh, uh, sort of speaking on how it very much reminded them of long winded, you know, slightly tipsy conversations from their Russian grandfathers. Um, and I, I think that's a that's a fairly, uh, fairly accurate way of putting it. Mm. Um, Putin went to that meeting or, or that um, that interview. I don't think with any intentions to actually really talk to a U.S. audience. Um, almost all of that positioning was aimed internally. Um, and, and frankly, I, I, I don't think there's any case where. Many people who, who don't have, you know, an outward, incredibly close interest in the war um, in the West actually watched it in full because, good Lord, it was hard for me to. And I was actually trying to, like, study what Putin was saying. Um, it, it was it was a slog of an interview. And I, I think that sort of tells us where Putin is at this point, is that one of his main goals is speaking to an internal audience, in that he doesn't really care as much right now about external positioning or, or external, you know, um, sort of propaganda at the moment. He'll he'll rely on other people to touch on that, but his, his main goal right now is you know, continuing to justify the war as a sort of Russia's historical right. Um, You know, its goal to retain control over, you know, starting in 828, um, you know, a a historic empire, Um, which has been Putin's view for a while. I mean, his his view of of Russia is is a very imperial one. Um, both both in its in its underlying nature and and you know it's its actual um operating uh banner um and and, and uh, uh, it, historic um he, he views this as you know, Russia's right Russia was an empire, Russia will continue to be an empire um he he sort of seeks to return that um and and I mean longer term, obviously, you know Tucker basically went to, Russia to have a history lesson recited at him um, and, and get insulted a few times by Putin um, but it, it, it definitely does reveal sort of where where the Russian sort of information environment is at the moment
0: yeah indeed and um, I think with that we'll move on uh, now to the other major topic that's still sort of in the news and that would of course be the, uh, the conflict in Gaza um, I, as I understand it this evening um, President Biden and, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have had a phone call. Um, that there's been some interesting sort of backwards and forwards uh, statements from both sides in the last couple of days um, with Biden pretty much saying that Israel needs to sort of consider where how far it wants to really go with this. Um, I think there was some sort of potential miscommunication where at one point it appeared that Biden was saying that Israel's response to the October 7th attacks was now over the top. It doesn't appear that there's been an official retraction or official clarification of that statement but it looks like following this evening's phone call they seem to be a little bit more on the same page with each other um, with Netanyahu emphasising that they need to continue this fight and that Hamas is very much on its knees while Biden reiterating that Israel needs to ensure that civilians are being protected and that aid is being supplied to those civilians in Gaza
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think there, there is a huge aid issue right now um, I know there are some very telling satellite images um, uh, uh, from, from uh, Maxar that came out, I think it was yesterday um, that showed just the the sheer size of the refugee camps right now in Rafa. Um, it, there's there's an area in the, the northern part of Rafa city that's just um, it's effectively become a tent city. Um, there are are hundreds of thousands of people um, sheltering in that area. Um, they're they're fairly close to the border crossing point with Egypt for aid. Um, it's it's still fairly far away from current fighting. Um, but it, at, at the same time, Israeli forces have announced that they're most likely going to be um, moving towards that area. So it, it just becomes even more of a humanitarian nightmare.
2: Especially when you consider that I think figures are there are 1.5 million Palestinians in Rafah.
1: Yes, I mean, and the, the, the nominal population of, of Rafah city is, you know, 200,000 basically. Um, but before the conflict started, so it's it's certainly a, a very large
0: increase. Mm-hmm. And Israel has said that it is looking at uh, what options are open in terms of moving the civilian population so that they're out of the combat zone when, when the push to Rafa does go ahead. Um, it, it seems more or less a certainty at this point. It, the IDF are pretty certain that that's their stated aim, that they want to continue their push. Um... But obviously, as as, as Netanyahu has said repeatedly, this is not something that's going to happen overnight. It, it, we're, we're going to be looking at this conflict for a, a good few months yet. Still,
1: yeah, I, I think that you know at the moment it's definitely, yeah, um, it's 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 a it's a large concern.
0: And I think one final topic for this evening um, is obviously going to be the the, the NATO exercise that's coming up. Um, exercise Steadfast Defender, I think it is. Um, it's going to be one of the largest NATO exercises in, in, in the organisation's history. Um, and obviously preparations are well underway, I th- if I recall correctly, there's going to be something in the region of 80,000 personnel from across the Alliance oh. involved in this uh, in this exercise. Um, George, perhaps you'd like to uh, just give us a little bit more on that?
2: Well, I mean, um, you, weren't, you weren't far off, 90,000 from 31 nations. And it's, it's taking place, more or less, I, I, I could be wrong on this, actually, so someone please do correct me, but I think it's mostly... Yeah, so it's most of Europe, uh, the landmass, at least, obviously not every country, but north, south, east, west, you know, that kind of thing. From uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, to Greece, you know, um, you have also Germany, Latvia. I'm just listing European countries at this point, but um, <laughs> my sort of thing recently has been the the lack of ability of the UK seemingly to actually send a carrier to this now many listeners may or may not be aware that HMS Queen Elizabeth was to lead quite a sizable portion of the maritime assets in this exercise it obviously didn't because it failed to deploy HMS Prince of Wales was due to take over today or rather it was was due to sail today um, and it didn't so if you are listening to this Take a seat because I I, I know the news that a British carrier failed to fail to deploy it, it will probably, you know, startle you. It will be so unexpected that it will shock you. But no, that is now two carriers failed to deploy. Now guys sorry, this this little bit we need to cut my legs. Alexa's just started talking, I'm so sorry. Um yeah. So back to what I was saying. Um where was I with that? Yeah, so HMS Prince of Wales was due to sail today. No reason has actually been given as to why the vessel didn't. I've heard multiple reasons, but be it logistics related, be it wind related, the Minister of Defence hasn't actually given an official line on this, which is uh, is pretty u- unusual because they usually try to head off any sort of speculation. They never go into specifics, but they've they all, you know, give a general sort of idea. Now, some people listening might think, "Well, why should they tell you about the fleet?" <laughs> that's, that's a question I'm asked quite a lot, and it. I suppose I'd answer that with, we do live in a democracy. We we do live in a society in which these things should be somewhat transparent. But um, I think I'm just rambling at this point. Um, but hopefully, hopefully HMS Prince of Wales will sail tomorrow. I think I heard probably tomorrow afternoon it was maybe just a 24-hour sort of issue, but all that being said, the ship was on 30 days notice to sail. Achieving the ability to sail in 7... Or- now eight days is a remarkable testament to the capabilities of the Royal navy and the ship's crew but um this is a wee bit far off the topic (laughs) well not not entirely too far steadfast defender um it's going to be huge it's going to be very interesting and really i think i'm going to cut my rambling short on that
0: and with that ladies and gentlemen i think we are all done for this episode so Thank you very much for listening Um, we will be back with another new Snapshots episode in about two weeks time Um, and you can always catch the rest of the OSINT Bunker podcast via our website www.theosintbunker.org or find us on Spotify, YouTube Apple Podcasts and all the other platforms